Hello and welcome to episode 60 of the Machine Ethics Podcast. This time we're talking to Madhu Shri Kumar from the Partnership of AI. This episode was recorded on the 22nd of June, 2021. We chat about managing the risks of AI research, how should the AI community think about the consequences of their research, possibly documenting best practices for AI research. We look at OpenAI with their GTP2, uh, talking about their research disclosure, considering unintended consequences and negative downstream outcomes, and what your research may actually be contributing. We talk about promoting scientific openness, proportional ethical reflection, and research social impact assessments. You can find more episodes of the Machine Ethics Podcast at machine-ethics.net. You can contact us at hello at machine-ethics.net. You can follow us on Twitter at machine underscore ethics, on Instagram, machine ethics podcast, or if you can, you can support us on Patreon at patreon.com forward slash machine ethics. Thanks very much and hope you enjoy. Hi, welcome to the podcast. Um, if you could please introduce yourself, who you are and what you do. Great. Um, thanks for having me, Ben. Uh, my name is Madhu. I am a, a program lead at the Partnership on AI. Um, so that's a multi-stakeholder you know, organization that's been established to advance responsible AI practices. Um, my mandate as a program lead is to identify what are some of the pressing you know, ethical conundrums that the AI industry um, you know, is kind of dealing with currently and really work with stakeholders within the community. So that can be civil society organizations, the tech companies themselves, um, and academic organizations um, to really identify what are those pressing issues which can be you know, high impact and can produce some sort of a consensus that you know, we can all work towards um, as a community. Great. And uh, um, do you have kind of a, a, for people who don't know, partnership of AI, in AI? On AI. On AI. Um, <laughs> what kind of organizations are there? Sure. So um, the Partnership on AI, or PAI, um, was established back in 2016, um, and it has about you know over 100 organizations. So it started out being um, established by um, some of the chief scientists from the leading tech companies, um, so Google and you know Apple and Amazon. Um, but there are also a variety of you know civil society organizations who are part of this um, mm. project. Um, so you know, Data and Society in New York and AI Now Institute at NYU, um, and there are also several academic institutions um, like the Berkman Center at Harvard, um, or even you know perhaps scientific labs like you know the Allen Institute. Um, so it's really bringing together some of the biggest actors in this space who are thinking about some of the moral ethical dilemmas that are posed by um, these technologies. Before we dive any further, um, there's a question we always ask, um, which I know that you are excited to answer <laughs> um, by the look of your face. Um, what is AI? Ooh, yeah, I feel like that's a question that trips me up every single time I hear it. Um, I think the best way I think about it is um, AI is really being able to predict something that comes next in a particular pattern. Um, I know that sounds vague, um, in part because AI is used in so many different ways, right? Mm. It's used to predict health outcomes. It is being used perhaps inappropriately um, to predict if someone um, can be uh, a criminal in another instance. Um, but also it's used to kind of identify, um, 
you know, um, who's a candidate that should, you know, proceed to the next stage in the hiring process. So the way I look at it, it's really being able to predict what comes next. There's, of course, a lot of critique of AI that is neither artificial nor intelligent. Um, so uh, that's something that I really want to center, um, even when I think about, you know, what AI really means um, and what it doesn't. Mm. I'm really interested in your organization because it's one of those um, kind of big, interesting things that happened in 2016 when there was kind of the beginning of this kind of um, uh, more broad look into the ethical impact of AI. And, and I felt like there was in 2016 onwards, we had this kind of whirlwind of um, interest. There was cause more people interested in what AI was, what it can do, and what the issues of AI were. Whereas before that, maybe there was murmurings, um, but it became more mainstream at that point, I think. Um, what what kinds of things have Partnership on AI produced? Or like, is there kind of like these um, really good messages that have happened since then? You know, what are the, the things that you have contributed i guess you guys over there i know obviously you've not been there the whole time but um uh, joined recently great um so the project that we're going to be talking about which is going to be the subject of our conversation today is this whole question of how should the ai scientific community um the ai research community um really contend with the societal consequences of their research um so we're going to be chatting more about it but that's Mm. something that i'm really excited about and we have kind of come out with a set of best practices for how individual researchers, conferences, and journals, um, and research leadership should really, you know, kind of normalize this discussion around the fact that the research that they put out affects society. It does not, yeah. you know, um, perform in some sort of a vacuum, if you will. But, you know, um, independent of that, some of the other projects at PAI um, that I found really exciting over the past years um, has been a project called About ML. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's essentially a multi-stakeholder kind of multi-year project, which is looking at uh, documentation practices um, for machine learning systems. Um, how are they built? What's the data that goes into it? Um, what are the different outcomes that it produces? Um, and my colleagues are really working to kind of identify um, how can we standardize that process and how can that be a process that helps outsiders really understand what's going on inside a machine learning system. Um, so I'm really excited about the you know, results from that, which have been, you know, gradual and kind of ongoing, mm. um, but should culminate in like a best practice. Um, yeah. Industry. And and I guess the point of doing that is to have better transparency, uh, accountability stuff in data science practice. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so let's, let's talk about this, the, the recommendations. Um, so you, you mentioned that there was this uh, white paper that I've had a brief look at, which is all about um, if you're researching or if you're in the research community, some subjects to do with AI that might be impactful in a way that is maybe unknown to you or maybe that you should take more time to to pay attention to what your research might impact down the road. Um, and I guess one of the biggest examples of this is like GTP2, right? Like... Um, when GTP2 came out with OpenAI, they had this publication on their website saying, we're kind of worried about this, right? We're, 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 we're worried about the things that we are doing currently, and this is why, here's some reasons, we're going to give you, you know, a small amount of the output to give you a taste, but we're not going to give you the whole thing. Uh, and there was this, this kind of like thought process that went into what if people have general access to this technology, is that going to be a bad thing or not? Um, 
so that's kind of like an interesting kind of turning point of like um, or point of reference. Um, wh- I guess where did this document come from? Like why did why was it produced? Um, and who's it for? I guess as well. Great. Um, and yeah, that's that's kind of one of the important incidents um, that's happened in this space over the last you know few years. Uh, which is one of the major kind of AI research labs called OpenAI. Um, They put out something called um, GPT-2, which is Generative Pre-Trained Transformer. That's what it's short for. Mm. Um, And essentially what they did was, um, you know, kind of adopt a stage release approach. Um, So it's a, you know, large language model, and they were concerned about how that model could be misused potentially. Um, and they, they kind of decided that, it, you know, the community is better off, um, you know, not having access to that entire model to begin with mm. um, and to kind of gradually consider what are some of the risks that could, you know, come from, um, you know, access or use of that model. Um, but, you know, moving on to the white paper itself, um, it's incidents like these and some other instances where AI research papers have really come under the scan over the last few years that made it clear that um, there are real societal consequences for the work that people put out. And there have been trends of increasing commercialization of AI research. Um, you know, there's been a lot of interest from governments to kind of leverage it and regulate it. Um, and I think finally, um, yeah, I think it, the reality of it is that anything and everything that we use these days have some sort of an element of AI in it. And that really made it clear that the AI research community is at the front lines of a technology in the past 10 years, which has been increasingly deployed. Um, so they really need to consider what's kind of the responsibility of the work that they put out there. But what the white paper does is be really mindful of the pressures that AI researchers are currently under. Um, you know, often there's a publish and perish philosophy, you know, publish or perish. And, mm. you know, you either have to kind of meet those deadlines, you know, um, create that kind of profile, uh, you know, publishing a lot of papers at conferences and journals. And that's a lot of pressure for, you know, um, young AI researchers to be under. Um, so what we've really considered is what's what's um, a way in which um, researchers can begin to reflect on potential negative downstream consequences of their work, but how can we do it in a way that there's least overhead as possible? How can we do it in a way where the gatekeepers, who are the conferences and journals, can really start to incentivize um, and encourage this kind of you know culture of responsibility within the community? Um, and yeah, and, and I think part of this, I think what's important to remember is that this is just the beginning, right? Um, other scientific communities um, like biosecurity and cybersecurity um, have really come to terms with the fact that they often deal with harmful information um, and that they have to be careful about, you know, um, how they, you know, share that information in a research product. So that's often called dual use research, right, where the same research can be put to, uh, you know, um, a societal benefit, but can also be devastating or even catastrophic to society in many ways. Mm. Um, and that's really that moment that has come to the AI community right now, um, where they're beginning to contend with the fact that um, they owe a responsibility not just to each other within the community, they owe a responsibility not just to the pursuit of scientific inquiry, but also really they might owe a responsibility to society, um, knowing what we know about AI and how it's being deployed in the world um, and some of the unfair and unsafe outcomes that it can produce and i guess it's weird you say that because it's almost like you should be somewhat con- cognizant of 
your responsibility towards society anyway. <laughs> um, but I guess we have to, you know, spell it out because I guess not all research obviously impacts um, catastrophically. So maybe we've started from this position of um, not negligence, but like, you know, safety. And as we're, you know, going up and changing and doing different research, maybe we don't know necessarily that we're doing some research which might you know, be detrimental in some way. Yeah, so it's, it's interesting how those things like become normalized. Um, and I think, you know, in that white paper, you were talking about some of these words like making it normalized or normalizing, commending, um, changing the atmosphere around, you know, how you conduct this sort of thing. No, that you're completely right. I think the challenge really starts when you you kind of consider a particular outcome from a research which was unintended, right? Because often when you're a researcher, you're really thinking about that one thing, you're optimizing for that one thing, and that's really the intended consequence that you envision um, is the significance behind the paper, or that's why it's meaningful in the literature. Um, but the challenge really arises when it's an un- unintended fo- you know, consequence, but you know, perhaps it was a foreseeable consequence. So it's that kind of window where it becomes clear that, you know, um, there is something that the researcher can exercise there to really be able to consider some of those foreseeable consequences, but it requires really moving your attention towards, you know, what's unintended. That's not something you thought about, but hey, this is something that could happen. Um, So one of the examples that we share is, you know, let's think of a researcher who's doing, putting out some work on a new you know, video manipulation technique, right? So the intended outcome for that researcher can be that it can be used in face popping, like in, you know, action movies or in animation. Um, but the unintended consequence that that researcher must consider and perhaps articulate is that it can also be used in, you know, non-consensual imagery that can be used in deep fakes. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's really about articulating that trade-off, right? Um because this entire exercise of thinking about negative downstream consequences is not going to catch every single potential bad outcome of a research product, a product that's being put out there. I think that's, mm-hmm. um, you know, that's a threshold that this is not aiming to satisfy, um, mostly because it can be impossible to be able to foresee exactly the different ways in which something can be put out in the world and can go wrong. But instead, this is really an exercise in thinking carefully about the trade-offs um, because there are often trade-offs um, we know AI research is dual use and being able to articulate it and in some case if necessary being able to take steps to either mitigate some of the dangers um, you know you can redact portions of the paper um, or you can you know do what OpenAI did with the stage release um, or maybe not share the code um, or in some cases maybe you have to go back to the drawing board and really think more carefully about the research question itself but it's really an exercise in pursuing, you know, scientific openness. Um, it's really requiring researchers to be more open versus less open. I think that's kind of where the fear often comes up. Mm. Um, is this, an, you know, is this um, an initiative to forbid science? Um, and that's where, you know, I'd like to push back. This is really not about forbidding any particular branch of scientific inquiry. Um, it's really about you know, thinking more carefully about um, what the, you know, what this research really produces. Um, um, so it's really an exercise in being more open and transparent about the risks um, that can come from AI research. You say it's not against any particular research inquiry, but there is there a sense that you could be, you know, going too far and 
And there might be, like you say, going back to the drawing board, but like downing tools and just saying, well, you know, we've asserted that this is actually something which is going to be too detrimental. Um, and is that something that would have to be ascertained through the institution? You know, the research themselves, maybe peer review, um, these mechanisms, right? There's just different mechanisms that you can progress through and, and, and presumably these sorts of things will get picked up in that process and, and maybe pushed back on. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's a great question. Um, so I think there could be two different outcomes when it comes to a particular AI research, right? Mm. Um, the first instance, which we discussed already, is where there's some sort of a dual-use risk. Um, you know, perhaps a portion of it, um, you know, requires sharing of some harmful information mm. and you have to really think carefully about... Um, you know, whether the risks um, or the benefits of sharing that harmful um, information outweigh the risks. Mm -hmm. um, so one of the examples that I can think of um, is um, when the conversation around gain-of-function research really picked up um, back in 2012, um, where this whole question of a harmful mutation um, of the bird flu virus that was created in a lab came up, and it was a question of, you know, should you publish that? Or should you not publish that? Mm. Um, and there, the values that came up was it's important to you know kind of share information about that new mutation because it's highly communicable. It's important for healthcare workers around the world to know that this could be a case that they have to consider soon, and they should know the warning signs. Um, but the risks were that that very mutation, which was created in a lab, um, could be weaponized, you know, could become a subject of a bioterrorist attack. Mm. Um, so this is kind of an instance of where a research product can produce, um, can kind of provoke dual use, you know, concerns. Mm -hmm. um, and in those cases, it's clearer that you have to think more carefully about mitigating um, some of the risks. So in this instance of this paper about a new virus mutation um, of, you know, bird flu, they decided to publish it anyway because, you know, the conclusion that the community came to was that the benefits outweigh the risks. But this is something you really have to think about on a case-by-case -case basis, right? It's the second set of instances where it can get a bit more, you know, challenging or murkier. So this is where the research question might be considered morally objectionable, um, and that's when, you know, it becomes less clear exactly what's the best way to proceed, right? Because mm -hmm. um, redaction does not make a whole lot of sense if the research question in itself can be really harmful, uh, you know, to certain groups in our society. Mm -hmm. um, for instance, one of the papers that's come into sharp focus in the last few years uh, was a paper on predicting criminality based on facial features. And there's a lot of backlash from within the community. So this paper wasn't published yet. Um, but there was a lot of backlash and there was a call from the community to not publish this paper in any venue because mm. the paper really doesn't take into account decades of science on phrenology, which is that facial features can't really be used to predict, uh, you know, a human's behavior mm -hmm. or their characteristics or traits. Um, so that's another instance of where, you know, the question can be perhaps morally questionable where mm. this, you know, people from within the community and outside might really think that this isn't a question we should be pursuing in the first case. But the truth of the matter is that this is going to be really um, a minority of cases, right? Mm. In most instances, it could be a research question that can be tweaked a little bit. It can be a research question where perhaps um, you really talk to the expert on the ground. So if it's a question about, you know, how do you introduce automation in child welfare agencies, 
you know, maybe uh, what the researcher can do is talk to actual specialists on the ground. Um, or it could be instances where you just make sure your data set is more representative, um, that you consider minoritized communities, that you consider different socioeconomic behaviors. And in those cases, you really don't have to not publish. You know, there's no question of publishing mm. it or not publishing it because you can do stuff that's within your, um, you know, kind of power to be able to change the course of that question. Um, so really, it's it's that tiny set of cases where you might have to decide not to publish for the benefit of, you know, um, the community and society in general. Um, but yeah. Um, so <laughs> it, sound, it sounds reasonable, right? Um so do you have any, um, I mean, obviously we talked about the, the fact that the paper itself is called the six recommendations, and we've talked about some of those recommendations already um, in, in some of the um, forms. Is there some of those recommendations that we haven't touched on yet that we can kind of pursue? Sure. So I think one of the main takeaways for your listeners can be um, that what this white paper really calls for is to normalize the discussion around negative downstream consequences. Mm-hmm. Um um, so one of the ways that we recommend this can be done is for individual researchers to really become more open about the motivation um, and um, also the extent of the contribution within their paper. And we really say that because often motivation is really important to be able to understand where the researcher is coming from, and it can also shed light on what are the different ways in which it can go wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, what are some of the unintended consequences that the researcher has not considered? Um the level of contribution is really important because the rule of thumb that we come up with in this paper is um, that that the ethical reflection can be proportional to the level of contribution. Um, so if it's, you know, let's say, you know, incremental, um, you know, mm. really you only have to consider that kind of particular advancement in that AI technique that you have furthered and think about how that can really impact society. Because um, you can always cite other work that's considered, you know, um, the domain itself. Mm-hmm. So, for instance, if someone is trying to further, um, let's say, an incremental advance in facial recognition, um, the responsibility of the researcher there wouldn't be to consider all of facial recognition research and what we know are the harms that emanate from it, um, but to really be able to cite some work that does that, but more carefully think about that particular advance that they have proposed in their paper, Um because researchers really have a unique vantage point into that one thing. They're really the experts on what they are proposing. Um, and that's what we want to draw attention to um, when we you know, call for researchers to ethically reflect. Um, so in cases where the level of contribution is much higher, you know, let's say it's a new technique that can be you know, scaled at a level that we haven't seen before, um, you know, that is incredibly large in its size. And in those cases, you know, the ethical reflection clearly has to be a lot more. Um, and it's proportional to the advancement that the um, authors come up with. Um, so this NI rule of thumb is really about what I said before, right? How do you kind of reduce the overhead? Um, mm. How do you make sure that this ethical reflection happens early on in the research process? It really does not have to happen at the publication stage, where it can get so much harder uh, to kind of pivot, but it can happen at a much earlier stage. Um, And I think one of the things that we really kind of endorse here is that we don't expect AI researchers to become like um, futurists overnight, right? Um, This is really hard. You know, this is the first time this community is contending with the realities um, of how their research can impact society. Um, So it's really more about 
how do AI researchers talk to people from you know different domains? Um, how do we uh, you know how can research leader, leadership kind of encourage uh, more partnership with interdisciplinary researchers? Hold seminars and creative discussions on you know what is the project that they're working on and what are the motivations? What are the ways in which it can go wrong? You know if it's um, um, used by the wrong people. And part of this is also recognizing that there are disciplines that have thought about this, you know, um, far more deeply than the you know AI research community has. So if you think about historians, you think about political scientists, um, especially from different geographies, um, you really start to consider, hey, these are the people who know how authoritarian regimes can use government, you know, can use technology uh, to control or surveil, um, you know, mm. minorities and discriminate against them. And that kind of knowledge isn't something that is you know perhaps easily accessible right now for an ai researcher and i think that's something for the community to consider how do we make it easier to be to be able to kind of forge some of these relationships um so you know mm. the community is just able to build capacity to really think about how the technology can be used um i don't know five six years down the line maybe even decades down the line mm-hmm. so, uh, that sounds like a call for more collaboration between disciplines um, as well as what would be lovely is what you were saying before would be a quintessential here is a start at all the different issues with a particular region of the AI process or or technique or whatever it is. So um, you were referring to face recognition. Here is everything we have in face recognition, <laughs> you know, and, you, and, and there's some sort of um, well-documented article which just scopes that all out and people could refer to it um so we need we so we need people um if there isn't i'm, I'm sure there is this work already there uh, it's just having it accessible to you know i'm working on this particular thing i can go and look over here it, it's got a lot of what i'm going to be thinking about i can reference that and then i'm going to think further probably to do with the you know has it captured everything is it capturing the novelty of what I'm producing? Um, and I like the references in in the white paper around, you know, obviously you were you were saying that not everyone has to be a futurist, but that you can utilize some tools like design fictions, um, workshopping, talking to affected parties. So if you're building something which was to do with crime detection and then you can talk to parties like police institutions or um, individuals which get affected by you know there's all these things that we can do um so i guess it's scoping those sorts of things out which the things that make sense in that particular instance and uh and making sure that that becomes part of your methodology i guess for that research correct yeah yeah and what's really important to consider is that this is this is going to help researchers, right? What you mentioned, like if it's going to be a paper on you know predicting criminality or something to be used in the criminal justice domain, um, talking to the affected parties um, is really going to be something that's you know going to help you refine the question better. It's going to help you identify what are the gaps that really matter in practice um, that perhaps automation can play a role. But also you can come away thinking, hey, maybe this isn't a domain where we should be proposing for any sort of a you know um, AI tool, maybe. Mm-hmm. The domain isn't ready yet, uh, or maybe we haven't considered like false positives. Um, so this is really a process which can help the entire research inquiry as well, um, and it's, it can be a critical facet of how one considers scientific inquiry, which is 
how does that particular research operate in on the ground when it's kind of deployed mm-hmm. um, but yeah yeah um it's it's interesting because you, you, you it's, it's like like you're saying like taking a certain stance like you're t- you're viewing your research from a direction and that direction is you know how do, how does this impact us like is this useful for society right how can how can it be used um but i guess there must be a point this is probably going down kind of like more philosophical tangent but there must be a point where you're you may have to take the opinion um like maybe gtp2 and open ai where um you're considering the the optimistic or the pessimistic view you know this research could be really good if people use it well <laughs> um but it's got this dual use thing going and i've identified that and you know obviously you can have a look at the mitigation techniques um but are you are you calling for just being very explicit with all this stuff so just being like this does have dual use we think these are the use cases um we've done x y and z because of this fact contact us if you want to know more about it about this particular research project um in a similar way to the this, the bird flu research must have undergone yeah it's just interesting to me how this would actually play out you know uh, and how those decisions get made um in face of bad actors i guess yeah yeah no that's that's a great question um so one of the you know things that openai did with the release of gpt2 was um they drew attention to the fact that there was a societal value that they were concerned about they were concerned about you know perhaps these large language models being used to um, perpetuate more disinformation um can be used to create language to harass people um and so it became clear for the community exactly the societal value that they were thinking about mm-hmm. and how that clashes um with the principle of openness and you know why they decided not to publish the model at the first stage um but that's not to say that this is an easy trade off to make i think often you know this analysis of do the risks or you know kind of outweigh the benefits can be a complicated one mm. um and different parties can come to different conclusions um so there was a pushback to the stage release of gpt2 when several members of the community were like hey you know what it takes massive compute to be able to replicate something like that model that computer is perhaps not you know easily accessible uh, to a lot of actors and perhaps even malicious actors um so maybe you know maybe there is don't outweigh the benefits in this case mm. so that's really an important kind of process of where you know you realize that different people can come to different conclusions but the only way we can build capacity is to be as transparent about it as possible as you said um you know if you're redacting a portion of the paper you should be able to speak to why you chose to redact it um what is that societal value that you're concerned about are you concerned about you know it being used to create you know non-consensual imagery that will affect women disproportionately mm-hmm. in which case spelling it out is really the only way the entire community can iterate um and start to think more about um hey was that assessment of risks and benefit you know was it the right way to go um or do we differ on you know on that particular assessment mm-hmm. cuz the reality of it is that you are making this assessment in a vacuum right in some cases you might have important precedents from history uh you know from different scientific domains that can really help sharpen how you think about that trade off but in many instances you're probably the first one doing it you know you're kind of 
working in a vacuum, which was of, which is kind of the case with OpenAI with the release of the large language model. Mm. Um, so the verdict's not out yet. Um, and you can't perhaps in some cases wait to find out. You can't put out something that's harmful and then find out, hey, it's been weaponized. Yeah. Looks like we might want to take it down. Yeah. Um, so this is going to be an iterative process. Um, but the reality is we are only really going to be able to get better at it if people aren't, um, you know, not going to, sh you know, people need to share that information. Because mm -hmm. um, if you don't share that information, that's when, you know, there's no learnings. We don't come to, you know, we don't have this conversation where we can think about how risks and benefits, you know, um, how the trade-off is getting made. So it's really about being as transparent about it as possible. And more importantly, it's really a central tenet of the scientific field, which is openness, right? Mm -hmm. um, if you think about, you know, how um, uh, citation practices are really important, um, how they have to acknowledge what, you know, what's the previous work in a particular field, um, how they come together to review each other's work. Um, it becomes really clear that the means of, you know, doing research um, is one of transparency and one of openness. Because um, mm -hmm. it's kind of born out of a realization that, all of scientific research is incremental. You know, no singular advancement happens because you came up with it from all from scratch, right? It's really building off of other people's kind of scientific knowledge as well. So in that kind of pursuit of openness, it's also important to talk, be open and talk openly about what are some of the risks that you foresaw and that kind of, you know, provoked you to maybe not put it out um, in its entirety. Mm -hmm. um, is there anything coming through in your organization what, you, what exciting things are happening? Great. Um, so what my mandate is um, over the course of this year is to really think about how can we get different research labs and different, um, um, you know, conferences and journals to really adopt the recommendations that we have in our white paper. Um, so one of the first, you know, responses we heard from the community uh, was from the journal Nature Machine Intelligence. Mm -hmm. um, so they put out an op-ed endorsing the recommendations in the white paper, and they've decided to ask for you know, social impact statements from researchers when, um, uh, you know, when the research involves, um, you know, human or socioeconomic data. Mm -hmm. um, so that's a great first step already. Um, so part of my kind of process is to think carefully about, you know, what are some of the reactions that people from the community have? What are some of the reasons they might not want to adopt it? Um, and how can we consider some of that um, while we think about the next iteration of the white paper, perhaps? Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, part of this is really, you know, part of the outcome here is to kickstart this conversation, which is kind of why I'm here on the podcast as well, right? Um, it's an important conversation, not just for the insiders in the community. I think that's what's really important. Because um, when we think about some of the risks from the bio, um, you know, kind of uh, technology mm -hmm. community, that was an open conversation that a lot of people were intrigued and excited about, um, and they were curious to learn more. And that was not contained to people within the scientific community. Um, so we are kind of going through a similar moment where we're having this larger kind of reflection um, with insiders and with people from outside, like mm -hmm. policymakers, to really think carefully about um, how do we how do we ethically reflect as a community? Yeah, and I guess you have somewhat access to your partners, right? So getting those people, organizations on board. Um, is there something? you know, for our audience here, is there something more general that they, if they have some interesting insight or they are working for an organization who maybe are not part of the, the partnership on AI, uh, is there any way of getting involved or, or giving you feedback or agreeing with you? How would they do that? 
Yes, I think that's such an important part of, you know, part of this entire process, which is uh, there are a lot of researchers, right, within tech companies, um, within academic institutions, and, you know, many of them have different review practices, uh, both internally um, and even like, let's say, you know, how they individually approach um, that entire process mm. of, you know, from, from the research question to the final product. Um, so it's really helpful to learn from the community um, where they think some of the challenges might be. Um, what are some of the blockers that they are facing? Because this report is really about the people on the front lines, the researchers themselves. Mm. Um, so, you know, feel free to reach out. We have an email ID on our website. Um, you know, feel free to contact me on Twitter or LinkedIn because um, we really can't do this uh, without any of you. Um, so if anyone's out there and you're like, I want to start ethically reflecting on what I'm putting out in the world, now's your chance. Reach out and happy to kind of... Um, get you involved in um, our next steps. Sweet. So I think we're getting towards the end of uh, our podcast. For you, I was wondering, you know, maybe less so about partnership on AI, but I was wondering if you have a, uh, your own kind of um, ideas about what is exciting and what might be a little bit l scary about the future of AI and our society. Ooh, that's a great question. I think the question, you know, what really brought me to this work and what I've been really intrigued by is how important it is for, you know, um, there to be norms that are developed in a bottom-up kind of fashion, right? Um, so I'm trained as a lawyer, and in my past work, a lot of my work was all about how governments need to regulate technology. Mm. It was more about top-down approaches. Um, but what's become clear is that this technology is progressing at a rate much faster than anyone anticipated. Um, we can't really wait around for regulation mm. um, or any sort of a prescriptive guidance from like any sort of an authority or an institution. Um, and it's become really clear to me, especially through this work, that it's really important for you know non-traditional kind of legal community norms to take its place instead. Mm. Um, so I think what's really exciting and I think also perhaps what can be a bit terrifying is exactly, um, you know, kind of the important position that AI researchers and AI um, teams right now really play um, and how they need to kind of really take up um, this entire cause for us to see some quick gains. Because mm -hmm, mm -hmm. um, if not, I think it can be really, really hard to be able to turn the ship around. Um, and I think that's what's been really um Keeping, keeping me up, not at night, but I guess just getting me interested, um, getting me super excited about what I do um, during my day job. Sweet. That's good to hear. Um, sure. Madhu, thank you for your time. How do people follow you, uh, read your stuff, uh, ask you questions? How do they do that? That's great. Um, so you can find me on Twitter. Um, that's perhaps the easiest mm -hmm. way to reach out to me. I'm also on LinkedIn. But really, you know, um, you can just find me on the website as well. Um, I'm always happy to chat. Um, always happy to learn um, from all of your listeners. Hi, and welcome to the end of the podcast. Thanks again to Madhu for coming on the show and talking to us about partnership on AI, um, research, and, and how we can all kind of work together and pushing the boundaries of AI and hopefully doing it in a way that is uh, respecting human agency, um, all these rights and things which are good that we want to hold on to. We've fought so hard in the past to obtain and hopefully go forward and, and, and you know give ourselves more agency in the future. Really lovely conversation. Um, I, I think some of the things they have in that article, those recommendations are just kind of 
almost no-brainers. Um, and I don't know if it's them focusing more on the maybe private entities who are producing more proprietary research. Um, that's a possibility and uh, trying to get them to hopefully be more open um, and also looking at those research projects which maybe have um, negative impact and have obvious things um, that maybe you shouldn't be doing. Um, a good one that comes straight to mind is maybe the, the example about the sexual orientation uh, research project which maybe is just you know maybe it's just not useful to have in the world anyway thanks for sticking around if you'd like to support the podcast you can go to patreon.com forward slash machine ethics and i'll see you next time